Our modern society depends on operational technology and industrial control systems for um, so many things to help manage and execute operations in many critical industries like energy, pharmaceutical, and oil and gas. Uh, IT, which we're familiar with, right? Information technology differs from operational technology in a few key ways. In uh, one overt way is that the logic executing industrial control systems has a direct effect in the physical world. So think of like when gas vents out into the air or when you're applying chemicals in a certain order to treat water to be drinkable. Like back in the day, industrial control systems had little resemblance to traditional IT systems. But today, due to low cost um, tech, remote access convenience and corporate business system integrations, Industrial control systems are adopting and integrating IT solutions, which is a blessing and a curse as you get all the benefits of IT, which is sick, but the system's attack surface increases, obviously, right? So what's our society to do to reap the benefits and necessity of industrial control systems while ensuring they stay secure? We need cybersecurity practitioners skilled in industrial control systems and an understanding of what the current state of affairs is in this space. Lucky for us, we are joined today by Rob Lee, CEO and founder of the ICS OT cybersecurity company, Dragos, and an absolute expert in the ICS security field. He's received multiple awards and honors for his contributions in the field and was recently seen on 60 Minutes, which I think is absolutely cool. Rob serves on the Department of Energy's Electricity Advisory Committee on the World Economic Forum Subcommittees on Cyber Resilience for the Oil and Gas and Electricity Communities. That's a mouthful. He's testified to the U.S. Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee and the U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee and advises on policy issues with relation to ICS cyber threats. You may have to go back and listen to what I just said again, because that was an absolute mouthful, but it's, you know, it's, it's an absolute banger. He's, he's killing it. To say we have the right person today to talk about ICS cannot be overstated. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Simply Cyber Live, bringing cybersecurity industry experts on to share their best practices, tips, and their experiences with you. We're here every Thursday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Gerald Ozier, and over the next hour, we're going to be talking with Rob Lee about the current state of cybersecurity industrial, in industrial control systems. Couple housekeeping items. I know if you're a longtime Simply Cyber community member, this is going to sound like old hat. But start all the questions for Rob or I with a capital Q in chat. It makes it easy for me to know that you're talking to me and not to chat. Also, I will make every effort to get your question up on stage and get Rob to answer it. So you don't need to submit it more than once, okay? Don't spam your question in chat. It won't make me go to it any faster and excessive spamming will not be tolerated for the good of the group. No one wants to see a bunch of spam, okay? Okay, now that we know what we're doing today, Let's speak with our distinguished guest. All right, Rob Lee, what's going on, man? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm out here at S4 in Miami Beach, my illustrious hotel room, coming to you live, of course. Uh, S4 is a, a big ICS security conference, so it's nice to see around, I think, 790 uh, folks this year, which is also kind of weird in the pandemic world of... Uh, a lot of people all at once, but I appreciate the opportunity to be here and thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I, I gave you know the intro of who you are. A lot of people in the industry are familiar with parts of your work for sure. One question that has nothing to do with industrial control systems before we get into it, but I, I desperately want to know, it's a bucket list item for me. It, what's it like? Can you describe what it's like testifying before Congress or the Senate or these committees you, you spoke to? Like, what's that experience like? Yeah, it, it's actually really awesome. Um, and what I would tell people is you may have your various political views, right? Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whoever, it doesn't really matter. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of what we see with our policy members and our congressional members is the view that they have to have on TV. And I will tell you, in my personal experience, uh, there is a, a really good expertise in that community on both sides of the aisle, if you will, uh, of, uh, and I, I'm not trying to call them two-faced, but there's definitely a TV persona. And then there are the just really good congressional Senate members really trying to get at the heart of these issues and, and take care of their constituents. And I'm a person that um, doesn't try to overweight anything. Uh, I don't try to let anything kind of get to me. 
but there's a distinct honor of being in front of American you know, representatives uh, and being able to engage them. And when they get in on those topics, it's usually because their staffers have done an enormous amount of research. And you know, it's hard to be a congressman focus on farm aid and Ukraine and cyber and, you know, all the different things you, you have to do, but, but they do a very good job with their staffers to really dial it in and really focus on those topics. And the great thing about it is what you testify becomes part of written record and written record is what they can pull from uh, for legislation. And so it's a very direct action, very direct impact on future laws, which is, is really cool. Yeah, I mean, that is really cool. I didn't even think uh, about the impact of like your testimony, for lack of a better term, and how that can result in policy. I was thinking of just like the experience of like going to Washington and going into the wood mahogany, you know, oh, it's, rooms it's and amazing. sitting in the leather chairs. Yeah. Right. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's super. Like, I, I always joke around with people like I don't wear a suit for anybody but Congress. Because it's okay. Americans' representatives, like that, I'll do it for there. You go to the White House, whatever. It's okay to show up in the Dragos T-shirt, and be like, "Yo, what's up, NSC?" You know, like there's there. But when it's when it's the you know the representatives of the country, you're like, "Okay, all right, on behalf of you for your constituents, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna put on the tie." I love it. So let's turn the conversation to industrial control systems because that's really what we're uh, what we're here for. Um, at at a big picture, as I mentioned in the intro. You know, OT used to be kind of separated from the network, and and I didn't even know this until like maybe a month ago that there's a greater integration of IT in 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 industrial control systems, which has increased the attack surface. What is the current like? What's the current state of industrial control system? And is it? And, and let me kind of shape the question: Is it more that it's all legacy and antiquated technologies, or is it more that it's got a lot of new? Uh, like IOT cheap devices that aren't secure, or is there some type of third thing going on? Like what is the current state of industrial yeah. control systems? No, it's, it's definitely all over the place to give in your industry and company and so forth, but actually you, you described it extremely well in the uh, opening, which is great. Um, let me, let me start off by kind of defining really what makes IT and OT different for folks. Um, and then I'll kind of get into your question a little bit more. And when we look at IT security, broadly speaking, I'm, and I'm stereotyping here, but just for the simplicity of the conversation, when you look at IT security, it tends to be system security and data security. And so we see a lot of focus on product security. You know, my, Microsoft comes out and screws up an Active Directory system, it impacts everybody. So we, product security and IT security are really overlapped. And we look at having patching, passwords, access control, privilege escalation guards, whitelisting applications, antivirus, EDR, just so much system security. And then when it gets to data security, we talk about encryption at rest, encryption in transit, DLP, we talk about data classification, and so on and so forth. When you look at the operations world, what you can do with any one system is kind of irrelevant. And so product security, which has an overweighted value in IT security, is almost irrelevant, not completely, but almost irrelevant in industrial security. So if Schneider, Siemens, Honeywell, Emerson, whoever comes out and has a bug or vulnerability in their controller, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Like I'm not. I'm not trying to you know, underplay it, but it's really not the big deal. What, what operation security about is about is systems of systems and physics. And so I don't really care what you can do with the engineer workstation, but I care that you understand how to modify logic off the engineer workstation to the PLC as system two in such a way that you can modify a valve or a physical process or actuator in system three. So system one, system two, system three, that systems of systems. Now you can start to hurt people and you can have an impact on physics it's not you lost some data or intellectual property, but it's you could kill somebody or you could have an environmental impact. And in a broad state, it's systems of system analysis and physics. And so we go back to your question on kind of like what's the state of it, that whole topic of IT, OT integration and kind of that, that transformation of the industry. That integration took place, that convergence, IT, OT convergence, that actually took place like a decade or more ago, probably 15 years ago now. So a lot of folks new to the industry were like, oh yeah, IT and OT are converging. No, nah, man, it's already converged. Like we, we've had Windows operating systems in the power plant for the last 15 years. Um, the IT OT convergence that's happening now is cultural and, and making sure that we're, we're bringing the right people to the room and understanding and focusing the mission. And what's really happening, what's really the state of the union is, and, and it's a bit of a buzzword, but call it digital transformation, call it industry 4.0, call it whatever you want, but you've got this hyper-connectivity happening in these automation environments. At the same time, 
that these threats are understanding that targeting industrial systems can be beneficial for geopolitical needs, military needs, as well as intellectual property. So you've got kind of this threat and transformation convergence that's happening now. And most organizations, when they start out, think they're in a better place than they are. They think, oh, I've been disconnected, or I'm air gapped, or I'm segmented, or I'm highly separated. And generally speaking, they're not. And so they've got to catch up and go, oh my gosh, I've got a lot more connectivity than I realized. And now do I, what do I do about it? And so it's that discussion um, that's taking place globally. That's where we've seen President Biden come out last year with the ICS National Security Memorandum. It's where you see Singapore launch their OT master plan. It's where you see the UK government, the Australian government, the Canadian government, lots of others start focusing on OT specific security. It's because we've been talking about cybersecurity critical infrastructure for decades. Hmm. Parliament, Congress, presidents, prime ministers didn't realize they needed to specify OT versus IT security. But at a large level, the critical parts of critical infrastructure are not getting the resourcing that we would expect uh, for this challenge. Just, just due to a misunderstanding, it's it's wild. So another question that you know, a burning question, because I I have a lot of professional experience, but it's never really been in the ICS space, so it's a it's a big void for me. For threat actors that would compromise industrial control systems for for whatever means whether it's a wiper to take out your adversary or to, to you know like whatever right to hurt the population do those threat actors need to have specialized skill the same way that defenders would need specialized skill in order to attack those systems or is it is it just the cyber kill chain rinse and repeat yeah great great question so um, when you look at the ability to impact operations, you can impact operations without specialized skills. We've seen that with the ransomware groups. There's been a, a just metric ton of ransomware groups that target industrial operations environments these days, not because they know what ICS is, but because they know when they target that weird stuff on that side of the business, the business pays more and pays faster because it impacts the revenue and impacts operations. So they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. It's just a feedback loop for them. And so it is absolutely it is absolutely possible to impact operations environments and the operations themselves without specialized skills, but you're not going to do it with any certainty, and you're not going to have any understanding of what you're accomplishing. And so the types of things that we worry about most, it's generally not going to be that. The types of concerns that we have on the ability to do physical destruction or disruption, hurt people, things like that. That does require a level of knowledge well beyond just having the cyber skill sets. It requires knowledge of the engineering and the operations of that environment. It's very specialized. And it's absolutely another good reason your defender should be specialized. If your adversaries are specializing, you kind of have to have that as well. And, and what we see is uh, that it falls kind of the ICS cyber kill chain, a paper uh, Mike Santana and I wrote uh, years ago at the SAMS Institute. And generally what happens is the threats are not as bad as we want to imagine, but they're worse than we realize. So the idea that somebody can just break into a power company and flip something and all of a sudden lights are out across America, like that's not a realistic scenario, but can it happen? Yeah. But is it some person just breaks in with an exploit and like flips some circuit breakers? No, not, not, not really. And so, you know, oh, I, there's a phishing email to the pharmaceutical company and now there's going to be modification of recipes and people are going to die. No, like, is it possible to do that? Yes, but is it anywhere near as easy as people kind of flippantly talk about it? No, not at all. And and so that's uh, that's kind of it's kind of the balance of the nuances. Yes, there can be really bad things. No, it's not that simple. But our industries are transforming and becoming more homogenous. It's becoming more common operating platforms, and so the adversary actions that used to not scale are now achieving scale. And yeah, I see the the paper up there. So. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a good paper for, uh, obviously, I, I wrote it, so I'm being super biased here and like self-promoting, but uh, for anybody that's want to understand why and how ICS attacks are different, uh, that paper kind of walk you through that. Yeah, that is interesting. And I, and I appreciate to know that, um, you know, I mean, Hollywood is going to dramatize the crap out of cyber attacks anyways, but I'm glad that it's, even with the OT and IT kind of integrated, it's not as simple as fishing Carl in accounting and, and all of a sudden you're one pivot away from uh, polluting, you know, the water or something like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, I always feel so, like I, I always feel like I'm halfway like two faced on that. I don't mean to be, 
when like I talk to one audience, Congress, security teams, whatever, I'm like, it's not that easy. And then I, then the operations people be like, yeah, you can't do that. I'm like, no, 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 you can totally do it. You know, it's, always, it's always kind of this balance of, of going back and forth. Like, no, you, you totally can kill people. But no, it's not just because you clicked on a link. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting back and forth. There's a little bit of activity inside the black box between input and output, yeah. right? For sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're talking about kind of working in the industry and stuff. Well, one of the interesting questions that I'm curious about is how how is COVID in remote workforce, right? So, so many people during this digital transformation moved home. I personally have worked from home for the last two years, and I, I don't think I'll ever go back. But how has COVID impacted ICS security operations. Yeah. So um, it, it has impacted them, but I would actually say there's some really good things that it's done for the security discussion as well. Um, so let me talk about the impact. I'll talk about the positive. So the impact, as you would expect, is that people need to be able to operate those plants. And for many companies, they had connectivity for the remote integration work, the maintenance work, their vendors, their OEMs, like it was already happening. But maybe they weren't doing operations themselves or their engineers and operators and it accelerated what was already possible the connectivity was there the access was there they just weren't really using it and so we did see a significant increase in access into those operations environments that adversaries took advantage of there was a couple that we tracked that literally were going door by door you know, firewall by firewall pole secure by pole secure finding vulnerabilities on the firewalls and access points into operations, taking advantage of that. You know, you've got a unique opportunity to do it. They were they were hitting that bell pretty hard. But the, the kind of positive aspect is at a board and CEO level, they fully understand where they generate revenue in that company. They're not confused. They, they know the operations out of the house is where that company generates money, not IT. The IT is the add-on to the OT, not the other way around. And they get that and they know that. But there was always this view in, in most companies of, well, we're segmented, disconnected, air-gapped, whatever else, we're okay. And when people started dialing in from home and remoting in, there's a lot of CEOs and board members that were going, oh, hold on now. I'm not that technical, but I don't think you can be disconnected and remoting in. You know, like, I don't, I don't <laughs> think that goes together. And so you had a large sort of awareness at a board level of, oh, wow, we have changed. And we now need to do all those security investments on the operations side that we haven't been doing. And one of the risks that I see for a lot of chief information security officers and chief information officers is the boards and the CEOs and the CFOs and the COOs and the VP of operations are getting better educated on the need to do OT security than some of the CIOs and CFOs who have a background in system administration and IT security and all the other wonderful of our community. So there's an opportunity for them to step up to the plate and be business leaders in that organization, but there's a risk to get sidelined quickly because they, they are seen as the people who don't understand what's going on. When you have your board better educated on the security risk of OT than your CSO, you very quickly lose that trust. Yeah, that's a recipe for disaster. Like, I mean, you're basically not doing your job, uh, I would argue at that point, because I mean, that's really what yeah. you're responsible for, for bringing that knowledge. Uh, geez, that would be that would be uh, embarrassing yeah. if, if and, a board member knew yeah. more. <laughs> so for, for what, sure, and I, okay. and I, like there's so many wonderful CSOs and CIOs out there. If, yeah, if I could, sorry, if, if, there's so many wonderful CSOs and CIOs out there, but there's a lot of them that I've met I mean, 90% are wonderful. There's that 10% that come from the financial industries or somewhere else that come into the power company, come into the pharmaceutical company. They're like, we're going to focus on IT security. I'm like, cool, but you know you're in the business of making goods or you know you're in the business of generating electrons. You know, I'm like, I, I, yeah, we'll get to that later, but I need to make sure the website's doing well and Active Directory and all this other stuff. But it's like, guys, like, you're, you're not in the business of running. Like you're, you're in the business of electric power or whatever else. Like you've got some biases that can happen in the community. And there's so many wonderful people, but we, we all got to be very careful of those biases. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Because if the, you know, the if you stop making the baubles or the widgets or the energy, yes, there can be life and, you know, health uh 
concerns, right? Environmental concerns, right? The real, real impacts. But as the business itself, you could go under because you're not generating revenue, right? It's all about the dollars. So we, we got a couple of questions coming in. Here is kind of like the crown jewel question of this entire uh, one hour. Introverted extroverts asking, how do you get into ICS? Is there a roadmap? Uh, what do you look for when you're hiring personnel? And I'm sure um, you've got a really refined answer for this one, Rob. Yeah, yeah. I think she was like tweeting at me the other day. So I appreciate you uh, joining the webcast as well. It's awesome. Um, the the view that I have is anybody's welcome. Like, And, and people say that and it sounds flippant, but it's real and industrial. Like we've got adversaries, we got problems, we know it, and we want more people in this field. Uh, so there's not not any of these asset owners, utilities, and others that are not hiring and trying to bring people in. And when I look at getting into ICS security, um, look, you're, you're welcome into the firms that are doing it, Tragos, uh, Deloitte, Accenture. There's plenty of firms that have consultants that can go get you in the field and get hands-on because that's the real necessity there. But the absolute best place to start, in my opinion, is either in the government, doing CISA, DOD, somebody that's actually going out and working the asset owners from that level, or my personal preference is the utilities, the manufacturing companies and the oil and gas companies themselves. Go be at an asset owner and really understand and learn those operations. And I wrote a blog, it's at robertemily.org slash blog. If you go like, I don't know, it's probably a couple of years back or actually better at the edge just Google getting started in ICS security. I created a bunch of free resources and insights and kind of cataloging a bunch of free resources um, about uh, videos and things you can watch. And what you'll notice in that blog is I don't do things like, here's a bunch of packet captures and you should go look at ICS protocols. Like that's in there. But the big first part of that blog is go learn the mission. Go learn what that site does. Go watch a YouTube video on how a wastewater treatment facility works. Go watch a YouTube video on how a nuclear power generation site works with a boiling uh, uh, water reactor. Go look at how a Coca-Cola plant operates and how they create bottles. Like go learn the mission, then think about the systems and the security of it. Because the thing that really frustrates people and the things that'll hurt you in your career is thinking you know the security answer before you know what you're trying to solve for. You come in and go, you should patch. We should update these legacy systems. We should roll out encryption and go, ho, ho, hold on. Like those things don't necessarily apply here, but whether or not they do, it doesn't matter. Please go figure out what we're trying to accomplish here. Go learn the mission, then figure out the security that maps to it. Because we are the digital janitors as it relates to security. The purpose of what's happening is those operations and the engineers and operators are already working their tails off to keep that going. And if I can get into a utility, a manufacturer, if I can go work at an asset owner, learn the mission, take a, take a case of beer and a box of donuts, go talk to the operators, then think about the security that can map over. You're going to be wildly successful. So, all right. So, and we've got a couple of people in chat who work at uh, municipalities and water plants. Uh, Justin Gold, he said he 100% agrees with you. I, I, have a, I have a question. And maybe it's, I didn't take the box of donuts. So before my current job at ThreatGen, I worked as the information security officer at a manufacturing company. It was, um, you know, $750 million company, 1,200 employees, 19 facilities, a decent size, but not, you know, not gigantic. And I was brought in to secure the business, right? Build a program. And all of my background, all of my bias, frankly, is around IT security and securing that. And I built them a nice program. And I kind of did a little bit with the ICS stuff, but it was always me interfacing with an engineer and having him, like, I'll ask him questions that are rooted in my IC, in, um, IT security background, and he would show me things. And we did configure a couple things, right? Like default password on a, uh, a system that was actually like cleaning air before it released, not cleaning, but making it not toxic before releasing it into the sky. Um, and I was like, well, we really shouldn't have yeah. default passwords, but I never really got into touching or integrating ICS. So my question is, Rob, if, if, if someone goes and works at a place or they're already there, like I was at a manufacturing place, what would be the best way to bridge that gap to go from corporate IT security to get more hands on with the OT security um, and, and, and deliver value to the organization as well? 
Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I, I don't mean to be too flippant with the box of donuts case of beer discussion, but it honestly is that, like, show up, be present. Uh, a lot of, when you look at your operations staff, a lot of them are overworked. They're dealing with a lot of different things going on. And somebody coming in to nag them about security is not helpful. It's yeah. just not top of mind for them. I've responded to more power outages from well-intentioned IT people than Russia, China, and Iran combined. You know, you, people do damage in those environments. And so there is a natural opposition sometimes that can occur. But if when you show up and you go, hey, I'm not here to do anything, I just want to learn. I think this stuff's really cool. Can you tell me about this? And hey, by the way, what do you need? Like, what can I help you with? You take that attitude, it's almost always well-received. And you'll find that there's stuff that's not security-related. They'll, they'll have a ticket open for the last six months on something they're trying to do in IT. And you're in IT security and not in IT. Maybe you've actually separated those out. But for your, your ability to go help prioritize that for them and go help them out, they don't they don't care. They don't know. They just know that you're the person that walked in to help them. And, and that starts building that relationship. And to me, when you can really start focusing on the security element of it after you've developed some of that relationship, um, probably one of the pound-for-pound pound best ways to do that is a tabletop exercise. So get like an ICS-specific incident response plan, come up with a scenario that the board, execs, whoever are actually concerned with, ransomware and operations, if you're an electric power company, look at the 2015 Ukraine attack, if you're oil and gas and crisis attack, use something real, not a scenario you made up, but like a real, truly genuine scenario that somebody else in your community has had to deal with. And bring operations and security to the table and say, hey, if this type of thing happened, how would we deal with it? Do we even have the data that we're collecting to be able to answer the questions that you need? Not just the security questions, but also root cause analysis questions about recovering mm-hmm. the operations and reducing the mean time to recovery. And who owns this? What do you expect out of security? And what's the role of operations here? And you kind of build that um, use case and the requirements around some real thing. And that ends up driving a lot of the conversations where it's not, I want to update your passwords because I think updating passwords is okay. And then they're already busy and they're not gonna really buy into that. But if you're like, oh, do you know, like somebody could come in here and change the logic on a controller during operations and we wouldn't even know that. So we don't have the visibility to identify key logic changes outside of a maintenance period. And we need to do that because if you did it on this system, you could reverse the polarity of the gas over there to cause a, a violation of the safety standard to a point that you could actually kill people. Like, oh my gosh. And you know, you have that like real conversation and you'll find that then it kind of galvanizes now that you've got the relationship an approach of cool let's go fix that like what what do we need to do around that and so if you're not seen as coming in sky is falling platinum coding everything but you're coming in mapping things to safety or reliability of the operations and you're trying to take a tailored approach and you're bringing the operations people at the table and you're not talking at them because some standard or framework told you to but because you understood mm-hmm. those the mission there uh, that tends to go extremely well interesting great great advice uh uh, on how to do that. Thank you. Um, so Kimberly actually asked Kimberly also of Miami. Uh, so she, she's, she's feeling the good vibes, uh, that you are also feeling Rob. Um, she, she said that the Drago's hiring statement blog is, is outstanding. Um, Thank you. and you know, she's at a loss why cybersecurity companies don't have similar hiring views. Can you share your thoughts on either the hiring statement or kind of the bigger macro, um, issue we're having in our industry? Yeah. And so um, for the folks that haven't read it, uh, I wrote this blog basically just trying to be transparent about how we do hiring and how we think about it. And I'm not saying we're right. I'm not saying we're better, but I just want you to know what to expect when coming and trying to join our company because we're trying to recruit you. Everybody's got opportunities in this in this field. And so if we're going to earn your trust, we're going to earn your respect, we're going to um, try to be able to recruit you. I, I need to tell you what to expect. I don't want to put you through a bunch of you know long hiring processes. It should really just be like three interviews. It should be, hey, here's what's up front. You should know what we value, candidacy, transparency, respect, assuming no malicious intent, um, and things like transparency of pay. Why get through an interview and try to get to the pay at the end? So like right up front on job applications, we say, here's what we pay. And it's not a range. Forget ranges. Screw ranges. I hate ranges. I think ranges inherently lead to negotiating against an employee. And then, oh, by the way, now you're a team member. And they can also inherently lead to discrimination and pay inequality inside the workforce. And so we just say that job is this amount. If you get the job, it's that amount. And so just a, a massive focus on transparency. And again, I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or different, um, but it has worked really well for us. And and we receive very feedback from explaining to people what to expect, what process is, so forth. 
And when you look at our recruitment team pictures, where every single application that comes in gets a human looking at it. There's no filtering of software and so forth. Every single application gets a human. And sometimes you get three or 400 applications per job posting. You know, it, it's not some small amount and they do a real good job going through all of them. And if you're rejected completely because you don't qualify for that position or we don't, or we have better people for that position at that time for what we're trying to solve for, you don't get feedback. We can't, we'd love to, but you just can't. But if you get to an interview and you go through the process and you don't get the job, you do get feedback. Hey, here's how you did. Here's exactly what happened. Here's why, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to the question on kind of why don't we see it elsewhere, you know, I don't know why other companies don't, but here's my perspective for whatever it's worth. And so again, I don't pretend to be all knowing and, and, and right, but here's my opinion. When you start a company and you're running a company, there is a set of playbooks of kind of whether it's venture capital or not, of what you're expected to do, how expected to operate. This is the way to do this. And there's a lot of folks that will give you guidance on, well, that's the way it's always been done. You know, there's not a whole lot of innovation in things like hiring systems. Um, and so there's a lot of, well, that's just, that's the safe way to do it. And that, that, that's what we've based on. Well, you, you got to do it this way. And uh, that can be very difficult when you're trying to run a company, you're trying to innovate, you're trying to do a mission, you're trying to do all the wonderful things you're already doing. And then you're like, oh, do I also, how, how much focus and attention do I put on this other area? And is it safe? Is it okay to go outside of the norm and try to do something different? Because it could backfire and blow up and it may not be well received. But I think when you're talking about hiring people, there could be no better investment at your initial time. And then in terms of your staff, culture and, and, and making sure they feel welcome in the company, have opportunities, there's no better use of your time than that. And so I, I do think it's incredibly important. I think a lot of the skills gap, which we'll talk about today as well, but I think a lot of that is overblown quite a bit. Uh, a lot of people talk about, oh, there's the hundreds of thousands of jobs that can't get filled. No, there's like jobs out there like, oh, you need five years of experience in a technology that's only been around for three years. Or I want you to be a junior employee and get junior pay. But by the way, I need you to have a CSSP and a SAN certification as a junior employee. You know, it's, it's very silly hiring requirements. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, as much as I, I don't think it's easy, the way that we try to bring people into the field is broken. And, I, and again, I'm not trying to pontificate that there is one right way to do it, but whatever your choice is going to be, at least be transparent about it so people can make good choices. And the last thing I'll say in that is even in our, our company, once you get on board, let's say you're we have a leveling system in every career path. Let's say you're at level one. You see everything in front of you, level two, level three, level four, level five, up, up to the VP. Like this is what everybody makes, complete pay transparency. And it just removes the drama of ever wondering if you're getting treated not as equitably as somebody else. But the other thing that it helps you with is letting you know if you should stay here. Hey, if I put in the work and I promote, is that job three years from now, actually what I want to do. If not, I'll go somewhere else. And uh, I think that sounds scary to employers. It sounds scary to employers and the pay transparency too. You know, I had our recruiters love them to death, but our recruiters who've been doing this for a long time and experts in their field challenged me in the beginning and said, well, hold on now. Our competitors are going to see what we're paying and they're just going to pay a little bit more and go recruit talent. I was like, great. That's wonderful. That's a great <laughs> outcome. Like if, if, our candidates and our employees are getting better offers and better opportunities. That's part of our responsibility to them. But if we look at all that we provide about work-life balance and mission and equity and everything else, like we're still going to get all the people that we want. But if we're raising the bar for people across and the Dragos alumni get to go do better and wonderful things after, that, that's only a net positive. So it sounds scarier than it is, but so far in our experience, as limited as it may be, it's been a very good thing. Yeah, I hope other businesses, um, especially startups and stuff like that, take take what Dragos is doing, you know, as inspiration and in doing it. Because I mean, it may be scary because it's different, but you're 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 proving that it can work and it can work well. So um, you know, I, I, chat is loving it. Yeah, I, I love the idea man, of not, it. We're not perfect. Yeah, we're not perfect, but we've got five hundred employees now, so we're not some tiny company either. So. For anybody sitting back going, you can't do it, that's crap. You can't. You may have reasons not to, but as a 500-person company, don't tell me that you can't do it. And if you want, I dropped a link to Dragos's website in chat there to the to the um, 
well, to the, the hiring mission statement, which I think is absolutely wonderful. But right here at the top, you can see careers. And this is, you know, Rob's right here to greet you at the at the drop in and you can find job openings. So I don't know. It looks like you got a lot of openings right now, Rob. So, guys, if you're if you're in the in the if you're in the market and you like you like what Rob's saying, uh, maybe check out the openings and see what's going on there. Maybe there'll be a, a fit for you at Drago's. So one of one of the other t questions that's come in that you know I, I find is interesting again with this this IT OT integration that happened 15 years ago. But one of the big terms in our industry is zero trust architecture, which I know it's a little bit of a buzzword, oh. but essentially, you know, moving moving the security from the perimeter to, to the user and doing, you know, least privilege and stuff like that, or conditional access. Has, has zero trust architecture impacted industrial control system security in any capacity? Yeah, I... I, I agree with you actually that a lot of zero trust is like least privilege reflavored and uh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I love it. Um, and I mean, the original Google paper, uh, Google paper beyond Corp uh, that was written really inspired a lot of the zero trust discussion. It's a phenomenal paper and it's a phenomenal discussion. And so I'm, I'm all on board with the idea of going in that direction. I don't think you really can have zero trust. I always find it like I love Microsoft so much. They actually have got such amazing teams and mystic and all these other teams, but it is hilarious to me when I'll see like, Microsoft's Active Directory Zero Trust implementation. I'm like, mm, Active Directory is literally the opposite of zero trust. You know, it's like, that's not how this works. And so I do think there's some marketing going on, um, but the idea and the, the, the direction to get there is wonderful in IT, um, but I don't think it's doable in OT. And so I see government agencies and I love them to death and I love better partners and I really try hard but I see a lot of government agencies and others try to push this topic of zero trust and ICS and OT. And I, I keep asking them, please stop. Uh, and, and here's why. <laughs> in the world of IT, if you are dealing with data and system security, the idea of zero trust is actually quite doable. It's hard, but it's a direction you can go. But when you're, in, and you're dealing with systems of systems, there's an inherent trust that must exist to run the operations. And the attacks we see, even this pipe cream malware that we talked about earlier last week at S4, uh, there, there's no exploits and vulnerabilities and whatever else are really taken advantage of or not really any that are required. It's abusing native functionality in the environment. If I can open up a circuit breaker to de-energize a substation as an operator, I can do it as an, as an adversary. So there's an inherent trust. So this idea that you can have a systems of systems that is zero trust, in my opinion, is not well-spent effort. Uh, and I don't think it's doable. It doesn't mean you can't adopt some of the principles of zero trust for like access management and similar. But I would rather people be focusing on getting visibility in the environment, getting an understanding of what the inventory is, being able to detect key logic changes of the controllers, removing team viewer from the HMI. Like do those things. Don't overfocus on things like zero trust, which again, I I think it have a place in IT, but I, I think is not. Uh, a, I don't think it really has a place in OT. To be candid. Yeah, it sounds like it's one of those you know key differences between IT and OT, and if you if you know, even like myself, right? Like if you came up IT, your focus is IT, your bias is IT, then you, you, you know, when, when you know how to swing a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So like, oh, zero trust, I'll put, I'll apply it over here on OT. Uh, when you really got to learn how to use a screwdriver, it's a different problem. It's a different uh, yeah, problem set. So similar question, Rob, but um, instead of zero trust, what about cloud? Has cloud had any um, is it a thing in industrial control systems or how is it a thing? And thanks yeah. for the question, Wes. It is. It, it is. And good to see you, Wes. It's, uh, Wes was one of my students in a Santa ICS 515 class. A phenomenal individual. Um, so, which is also, by the way, the best thing about being an instructor is like all these wonderful people who are already accomplished. We're already doing great things. Like Wes is already a smart dude doing his cool stuff, but then they become my students, and I can claim credit for all their work. <laughs> oh, he was, he was one of my students. That's that's uh, he's great. He, he was great without my class, but you know, that, you know, it's kind of fun to see these people go and do wonderful things. Anyways, um, so yeah, great question. The cloud is definitely a thing in OT. It just depends on your industry and it depends on your geography. As an example, if you're in Saudi Arabia doing oil and gas, you are not taking advantage of cloud inside of operations environments. National regulations prohibit. You're in electric power in the United States. You're taking advantage of cloud for things relating to data modeling, 
data analytics, but nothing related to control. However, if you're in the manufacturing industry, you can't run modern day food and beverage operations without cloud access. You know, there's, there's, so there's different industries, different geos have different approaches there. Um, but what we tend to see is, is there's a lot of opportunity with the cloud, especially on data analytics and data processing, but that's not necessary for control. And so what we'd like folks to do is to separate those two things out of, hey, I can take data and a data historian off of these operations, run it to the cloud to optimize it to get better production value, but I don't need to have an AWS server impacting the control of that plant. And so kind of sort of separating out view versus control tends to be very helpful. And you'll find that in your various network architectures that you use, whether it's like a 62443 tenant framework or whatever, um, that nothing about cloud really changes it. It's just more about understanding the choke points and the, the zones and conduits and kind of how to get there. Um, you don't want cloud connections all over your environment, but if you can kind of create them coming through a choke point, now you can actually make it defensible. And we're starting to see a lot of very interesting high IoT or kind of internet of like industrial internet of things. Uh, we've got a mining customer as an example, which is in my opinion, one of the, one of the better companies in the world, there's phenomenal people. And they have uh, self-driving and remotely controlled uh, Caterpillar mining trucks. And the mining trucks being multi-story tall vehicles have no human in the process and they leverage remote operations, but a lot of cloud and, and uh, kind of the Caterpillar MindStar application and the various uh, considerations around it. And it looks like it would just be this wholly different thing. But actually in the way that you architect the network and create the points, it ends up not being so different because it's a different technology stack is the same and so forth. And so I guess I would summarize it up, but cloud is here. You can do it in a smart way. You can take advantage of it in a smart way, but uh, realize that new technologies don't change OT. Like IoT and IoT don't change OT. OT is not about a technology. OT is about the mission focus of that plant for that site. And, and as long as you're respecting that mission, the different technologies you choose, you can do them all in an appropriate way. Great, great response. And uh, one one quick question about that, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but if you learn like uh, SCADA, and again, forgive my ignorance of this question is even, doesn't even yeah. make sense, but like if someone follows your paper or blog post on how to get into ICS and they start getting some skills and stuff like that, or they go talk to the OT engineers and they learn the tech at their manufacturing plant, is what you're learning transferable? Like if I become an AWS expert, I can't really map that into Azure because AWS is different than Azure. Is 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 like, is SCADA different than Modbus or is Schneider Electric different than Honeywell? Like it, how much of the video is transferable within the industry? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's actually a phenomenal question. And um, I think it's very transferable, but here's why. Because it's not about those products. If you all your time learning step seven things controls it's not transferable to the schneider electric system there's elements of it that are for sure um, but there's not a lot of it that's transferable but the point isn't the siemens step seven controller the point isn't the rockwell micrologics controller the point is a wastewater treatment facility and sometimes we'll use a schneider system sometimes we'll use a siemens system sometimes we we'll use an emerson system and so when you learn control you learn input calculation output, you learn physics, you learn the mission, then the systems are actually the least important part of the discussion. And so as long as your skill set is focused on that systems of systems interaction with an understanding of the operations, you'll find it's extremely transferable. That being said, OT is a made up term that basically just means not IT. And so there is a lot of different industries and the difference, like you, we talk about electric power, as if it's an industry. The difference between electric power generation, transmission and distribution and market operations is huge. The difference between hydroelectric facilities and generation versus nuclear power facilities, huge. The difference between upstream, midstream, downstream, huge. And so there's all these different. So do I think specialization is important on industries? Yes. When we look at our employees and the work that they do, they don't become ICS experts. They become ICS security professionals with specializations that they then start spidering out based on the engagements and things they take of really understanding rail and locomotive, later really understanding uh, electric power generation, later really, like 
going on industry industry, but the focus on an Emerson system versus Rockwell system, whatever, that, that is not as important. And while they are very different, uh, I, I wouldn't over-focus on specialization of the system. I'd focus on the specialization of the industry. I want to bring up a, a share screen here only because I read your blog last night <laughs> and yeah. you, you had made the comment about how you hate these uh, cyber pew pew maps. But I, I brought it up here because I want to yeah. ask you yeah. a question about cyber deception uh, within ICS as, as an activity. Um, so this is Shodan. Anyone can use Shodan to find internet facing industrial control systems. Now, I'm curious, Rob, are the systems that are I find uh, discoverable through Shodan, um, you know, is that really like a high risk and like what the hell is going on here? Or and or do we see people in your industry setting up honeypots and other cyber deception technologies, um, you know, which Shodan would find because that's the point of it? Yeah, so I love John Matherly like as a personal friend in the work that he's done on Shodan. Uh, and I love Shodan. And uh, I would not classify Shodan as, as what I was talking about. map. You're being very fair, though. That is it's very pew pew map looking, uh, that view there. Uh, but uh, the systems that are on Shodan, I would say, represent a fraction of the industrial systems that are online. Shodan does a really good job of picking up like a Modbus controller that's picked up or a steps controller that's directly connected to the internet. It's harder for them, though they do a good job at it still. I'm not putting down Shodan when I say this. What's harder for them is a VNC access or a team viewer access or something else that's remote connection with the ICS behind it. And so Shodan can pick up that stuff. You don't really know what's behind it unless you actually can access it or do something usually potentially illegal um, in, in terms of looking behind that access point. And there's a lot more ICS behind an access point than there is directly internet connected. And, and so Shodan is really only showing you a fraction of the problem. There is mostly accurate systems on Shodan. There are some honeypots and things like that, but Shodan actually does a good job of picking that up too and flagging things as honeypots. Um, the reality though is if your systems are accessible on the internet, okay? So Shodan identified systems, uh, it is very likely they are already compromised. Uh, and, and so the without any hype the problem there is there's a lot of adversaries out there criminals and state actors alike that if they can get access to something they do whether or not they have the intention to do anything with it is debatable but if they can get access you do because you never know when that jerk is going to walk into your office and go hey i need you to get access to this system oh gosh they might take me a month oh no we've already got it and so you're, you're kind of constantly preparing when you're in those groups um, and getting access in terms of the pew pew maps i, I would classify more and again i'm not putting them down as firms but I classify more of like FireEye and Kaspersky and, uh, you know, Checkpoint. Oh, yeah, maps, yeah. PP maps. And those are, uh, those are, in my opinion, one of the worst things that's happened to our industry. Uh, and, and they are just absolutely atrocious. Yeah, and I, I do want to say, um, you know, just in full disclosure, um, I wanted to bring up Shodan, and I'm not yeah. good enough at Shodan yeah. to be able to find the, the screenshots of all the different ICS stuff. So I found that, yeah. and I just happened to have read your blog post. Oh, it's a, yeah, um, yeah. No, no, so it's, I love Shodan, you're, you're, too. You're, I think being, it's, you're being fair. Yeah. Yeah, Shodan, Shodan's a wonderful resource. If you guys don't know about Shodan.io, you definitely need to go check it out and add it to your arsenal. There's there's no question how, how valuable it can be. So uh, we... We got a couple questions coming in. I wasn't <laughs> bad hosting here. I was getting all frothed up about making sure that um, I was giving some love to Shodan. Um, we got another from Sid here. What's your take on the automated or AI-driven defense mechanisms mechanisms for the ICS field? Yeah, so I don't like to overfocus on any one technology. And so I get a lot of questions, whether it's policymakers or researchers or whoever that talk about, like, what are you doing with AI and ML? Like, what do you want me to be accomplishing? You know, what's the requirement? Um, and so I usually, I don't, I'm not trying to downplay the value of AI and ML, although I will do so here in a second, but I'm not really trying to downplay the value of AI and ML. What, what my concern is, is people will often ask me, what are you doing with AI? And, and that's missing the whole point. What are you trying to accomplish? What would you like me to do? And if I can find a tool to do that, who cares what the technology is underlining it? 
And so is your question about, and I'm not talking to you directly sit on this, but like to the folks that ask me, that's usually like, is your question about automatic stuff? Are you looking for scalability? Are you looking for efficiency? What are you looking for? And if an analytic can get me the value of scale that you're looking for, then who cares if it's AI or if it's handwritten? Like, nobody matters. That it doesn't matter at that point. Um, and, and AI, in my opinion, and ML have really good use cases around highly repeatable tasks where you can have a data set and training data. The whole underpinning of ML is good training data. And when you look at ICS and you look at cyber, for, so forget cyber or ICS for a second, you just look at cybersecurity. The problem is there's adversary injects. Those adversary injects generally aren't in that training data set. And so you end up having ML and AI that actually is uh, those threat scenarios. So I'm not saying ML and AI is useless. I'm just saying it's a layer on a tool set you should be using. And in my opinion, it is often overinflated in terms of its value. Companies will come out and say they're doing AI when there's actually a lot of signatures or insights or intel behind it. And so usually I joke around with people and they ask me, like, do you do AI and Draco's platform or technology? I'm like, yes, lots of AI, actual intelligence. Um, and uh, that, that would be our approach to that. So when you talk about um, automation, though, which is a different question altogether, I think automation is very important, but it depends on the industries. Do I want automatic defense in terms of a power generation site at a hydroelectric facility? Not really. I don't want something to identify a threat and then automatically try to make changes because the changes, even if it's an accurate threat, could be worse than the um, threat themselves. I might find that I can fix it at a maintenance period, or I might find that I can uh, take a smaller action that then doesn't uh, compromise the operations, but reduces the security concern. However, maybe I look at a wind farm and I'm dealing with thousands of wind farms. Maybe that's actually a good use case now. What if I have a, a system that when it detects threats of a significant class of threats, will automatically make firewall blocks. And maybe it ends up taking down that one wind farm. But now I'm not taking down a thousand wind farms from a ransomware operation. Uh, and so when you look at smaller assets at scale where the human cannot keep up with the scale, some of those automatic defenses can be quite interesting. And we're just starting to have those discussions in this industry, but you have to have a lot of knowledge and a lot of tooling and a lot of insights before you go down that path. Conversely, Automation in terms of threat discovery is paramount. Uh, the ability, you know, every, every every now and then I'll run into a customer that talks about false positives. Well, I want a product that has no false positives. Well, that's quite silly. You actually want a lot of false positives. You don't want false positives becoming a high severity detection that gets everybody's attention, but you want a lot of signals in your environment to then go create better quality detections and responses. Uh, and those signals can also be used for hunting and creating new detections in the future. So you want a lot of signals, but you want a lot of automation to make sure that when I'm looking at the screen as a human, I'm only getting called in on the really important things. And whether it's ML and AI or analytics or rules or whatever you wanna call it, that is automation. And that automation is very useful. You know, the, the title of this talk is The Current State of ICS, and we have talked about getting skills and, and hiring and some of the practices and stuff. One of the questions that came in here that I'm going to throw up, I'm going to rephrase it a little bit. And if you don't want to answer it, Rob, that's fine. But we saw with um, Ukraine basically crowdsourcing an uh, IT army, right? Security practitioners, for lack of a better term, right? Crowdsourcing, here are targets, go for it. So there's been an uptick in non-military state uh, actors operating inside of this conflict. Have you, have you seen, or we can switch questions, have you seen any activity or uptick around, you know, looking at ICS stuff, you know, from a script kitty perspective? Yeah, sure. And, and I, I love all questions. I don't dodge any, feel free. Um, so this is a perfectly good one as well. Um, so thanks, Joel, for the, the question. Um, back in October of last year, we started seeing an increase in a couple of different state groups we track that are associated with what was going on in the Russian-Ukraine conflict, even pre the invasion, I think in late uh, early February, late February. So, and those actors, those groups were doing reconnaissance, not compromising, but high level probing, high level reconnaissance 
against key liquid natural gas and key electric sites across the United States, Australia, Norway, a couple other countries. And, and so we saw an increase just as tension increased of that state targeting. Then when things really kicked into gear and we, and, and we get into late January, we ended up being a part of a, a team that found uh, the Pipe Dream malware, which I talked about this past week in, in S4, and you're more than welcome to pull up the blog or so. And it's the seventh ever ICS malware. So the seventh ever ICS-specific malware. You don't need malware to do attacks, but when you have malware that's ICS-specific, it tends to be pretty, pretty dangerous. And it's a highly flexible framework. You can go after any different industry in most different industrial environments, most different control environments. Very, very flexible. It's the most flexible framework we've, we've seen today. It's a collection of tools. And the without getting into the sensitive details of it, uh, we were able to find that and analyze it before it was employed against its target. I'm not saying it was deployed where, but it was before it was deployed against its targets and employed. And, and what we found was this capability was purpose-built to disrupt, potentially destroy key liquid natural gas electric sites in the United States. And it was not something that was going to be waiting around for if we go to war. There's a mental model that a lot of people have of, oh, the adversary does a lot of cool things, but if we're not at war, surely they wouldn't go after our infrastructure. Like, that's stupid. And, like, you get to define everything about security. You get to set the table, you get to set the defenses, you get to set the environment, you get to set your response. Everything you do is what the adversary has to deal with. You get to define everything. But the one thing you don't get to define is whether or not you're a good target. That is exclusively the vote of the adversary. And so oftentimes defenders will talk themselves out. Well, I'm not a good target or I, they would they would attack us outside of a war. You know, and those things are they're not worth your time. Stop, stop dealing with what you can't control. And, and the thing that really changed the mental model here is Pipe Dream was built to be deployed outside of a wartime scenario uh, with the U.S., targeting key infrastructure sites in the U.S. for disruptive operations. And that is insane on every level. Uh, and so have we seen an increase in state actors targeting ICS? Yes. Have we seen an, an, an incredibly aggressive increase in the ability of an actor to go after infrastructure sites directly uh, as a result? With what's going on in the Ukraine conflict. Um, yes, that would be pipe train. And, and both are very, very concerning. Thank you, Rob, uh, for, for uh, respecting your time. Uh, and apologies, I know I didn't get to all the questions, Chad. You guys make great questions. You're a great audience. I love it. Um, Rob, I, I'd love to give you an opportunity, just kind of a send off. So uh, the stage is yours, and then we will uh, say say goodbye to you. Awesome. And we could have got to more questions if I didn't just like elaborate. I'm, I'm, I'm being from Alabama. Uh, you know, I, I take great pride in being able to speak English pretty good. Uh, and so I kind of, you know, I, I ramble on a bit on those questions, but they're really good questions. So thank you. So look, my, my parting message is this. Number one, defense is doable. It, it sounds scary a lot when we talk about what can happen in ICS. It sounds scary a lot when we can talk about the, the effects that can be achieved. But the reality is defense is doable. Like your adversary is somewhere between the ages of 18 and 35. Government's the first job. They get healthcare, childcare, PowerPoint, management, annual training, all that stuff too. They're just people. If you do your security well, if you get in those environments and learn the environments better than the adversary is learning them, you can absolutely stay ahead of this. We respond to a lot of attacks, respond to a lot of incidents. What doesn't make the news is all the times that we're in there that the defenders have done the right things and stave off those attacks. Um, so there's a lot of wins that happen that we just don't really get to talk about as a community. And so it's absolutely a doable thing. And number two, the water's warm. Come on in. Like if you are interested in ICS security, I'm not saying it's easy to get started, but good golly, you got a lot of people in this community that are just phenomenal people. And you will not find, in my opinion, I'm not trying to put anybody down, you will not find better people than those folks working in our infrastructure companies directly, the asset owners and operators, keeping lights on, keeping the water running, keeping our manufacturing goods going. They work and serve the communities they live in. They're wonderful people. You should go want to be part of that team. Please come on over to ICS Security. Uh, you'll you'll find it's a very welcoming community. It's a very satisfying mission, and uh, we we got nothing but love for y'all that are trying to come in. Whether you come from IT, straight out of school, uh, control side of the house, it doesn't matter. Uh, we want you in our community, so so please by all means come on in. And with that, I just want to say thanks again for your time. Thanks for having me, and uh, appreciate you uh, allowing me to come on here today.
Absolutely. And Rob, I know you're an incredibly busy man. People like Chad is like blowing up right now about wanting to have you on to answer additional questions. So maybe we can schedule something four to six months down the road uh, when you have some sure. availability. If if you had a good experience here and we could continue the questions. Yeah, All right. Very cool. I'll coordinate with you offline. Let's say goodbye to Rob. Rob, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the conference and uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks. All right, guys. So I hope you enjoyed that because that was that was so awesome. Uh, Rob is a really cool guy and delivering, you know, basically just real rich, valuable information. So I want to thank um, thank you to our wonderful guest, Rob Lee of Dragos, for sharing his knowledge and experience. Thank you to each of you in chat for your engagement and presence. You guys, I say it every week, guys, but it's it's you and our guests that make the show awesome. I'm up here just moving levers, right? You guys are what makes it so special. So thank you. Be sure to catch live cybersecurity threat briefings every weekday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and more cybersecurity expert interviews with awesome guests like Rob Lee every Thursday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can go to simplycyber.io slash streams for all the details about all the upcoming shows. You're just It'll take you right to it and you can get right in there. Have a great night, everyone. You have been watching First Things First. No, it's not First Things First. You've been watching Simply Cyber Live. See what happens when I try to ad-lib? It goes completely out the door. Have a good one, everybody.